Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Our subject today is stress. <laughs> Grab your Bibles with me, if you would, please, and turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. We are starting a new series today on our journey through the book of Acts that we are calling Messed Up. And it is going to take us to one of the cities that plays a major role in the New Testament. And today we're going to find out how Paul got to that city. It's a city called Corinth in the ancient nation as well as in the current nation of Greece. And then for the next four weeks, what we're going to do, we're going to start today and see how Paul ended up in Corinth, what happened to him there. Then for the next four weeks, we are going to walk through the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He wrote two letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. They're extraordinary teachings on what the church should look like, not just 2,000 years ago, but critical things for the church to know today. And so we're going to do the, the, the next four weeks after today, we're going to do like a drive-by through 1 and 2 Corinthians. So here's what we're going to do. I, I want it to be more than just you coming on Sunday and hearing a sermon. My hope is that as we go through these passages of scripture, we're going to enjoy them and experience them and learn from them together. So the ushers are going to help us at this time, and we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to kind of take a second offering today, but we're going to do it a little bit different. The first time the buckets went past you, you put stuff in. Today, and only today, <laughs> as the buckets go by, I'm going to ask you to take something out. There's a bookmark, and, and ushers, if you want to go ahead and start sending those around, that would be awesome. There's a little bookmark that's inside of there that has a Bible reading guide for the next four weeks for us. So if you start today and work your way a chapter a day through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then we're going to get through the 16 chapters of 1st Corinthians, the 13 chapters of 2nd Corinthians. We'll be reading these together as we go through this as a church. And what's exciting about that is when you read through these first seven chapters this next week, the next week's message is going to kind of give us a bird's eye view of those seven chapters, and we'll look at what you've already been studying for uh, throughout, the, throughout the week, and then at the end of next Sunday's sermon, there'll be a test. <laughs> not really. No, not really. <laughs> the test comes every day, doesn't it, I think? And so um, if you ever see anyone other than right now take something out of that bucket, you're allowed to raise your hand and point, okay? <laughs> but right now, grab one of those. I hope you'll join me as we read through this. As we go through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, just real quick in the month of November, we're going to be looking at this subject of messed up, that there are things in life that can have a tendency that either because of our choice or the choices of others, or let's just be honest, just life itself, they can leave us messed up sometimes. Next week, as we, as we get into the first seven chapters of the book of 1st Corinthians, we're going to talk about how conflict messed me up. Week after that, we're, we're going to look at subjects like church messed me up. Anybody? We're going to look at death messed me up. And the last week, we'll talk about our attitudes, and we'll talk about how I messed me up. Little heads up as you start reading through First and Second Corinthians, Paul was, was writing to this church in Corinth that we'll read about today, but he was not their pen pal. Like This wasn't just kind of lighthearted communication. He was writing to them because he had to correct things that weren't right in the church. His tone is very corrective. It's very serious at times. And although he points out all the incredibly good things that are about the church in Corinth, at the same time, when you read this, you're going to see based on what he says to them over and over again, you'll go, that was one messed up church. Those must have been messed up people. 
And that's when you can say, I'm glad I'm not messed up. <laughs> we'll see about that. Today, though, we're going to look at how Paul got to Corinth. And as we look at this, how, how did Paul get to this city? What was his journey like? One of the things you're going to see is that from start to finish, it was filled with our subject for today. It was filled with stress. Anybody here who's an expert on stress today? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Stress is the body's reaction to harmful situations, whether they're real or perceived. When you feel threatened, a chemical reaction occurs in your body that allows you to act in a way to prevent injury. Sometimes we call it a stress reaction. Sometimes we call it fight or flight. We look at it in different ways. Your heart increases. Your breathing quickens. Your muscles tighten. Your blood pressure rises. You've gotten ready to respond in some way because you've come up against something that has created some form of response or danger that's there, and your body prepares itself. That's called stress. You may know it when you're disciplining your kids or when you're in a busy time at work, when you're managing your finances, or when it's time for midterm exams, or when you're coping with challenging relationships. And look, stress is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a good thing. God has designed us to have a response to stressful situations. Let's say you're walking down a path in one of our metro parks. You're enjoying the, the fall leaves and the, and the crisp bottom air, and all of a sudden, a lion jumps out, <laughs> right? Hypothetically, a lion jumps out. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to have this stressful response where you're going to go, do I fight or do I flight? Do I, do I go after this thing or do I run? Because stress says in this moment, you got to do something because you have to respond to this situation in this moment. So stress is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. It's a part of the way that God has wired us. But if we have too much of it or if we ignore it, it can be detrimental in our lives. So as we go through the first part of this, this passage in Acts chapter 18, these first eight, vo eight verses are going to show us Paul's journey, and what you're going to see is that it is one that is marked with stress, just like your journey, just like my journey. And we're going to look at Paul's stress and his reaction and the response that happens. I want to show you five sources of stress today as we go through the first part of this passage. Five sources of stress. Here's, here's the reality. This isn't rocket science for you. Odds are you are familiar with these sources. It's nothing new. It's probably something you've experienced maybe even this week. But the truth is it's important for us to identify these sources of stress so that we'll then know how to respond to them. So let's start with the first one. The first kind of stress we'll look at today is what we'll call, number one, situational stress. Let's call it situational stress. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations, the environment that we're in, the culture that we're in, if you will, that causes stress to us. Acts chapter 18, verse one says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. If you've been with us at all in the last month, you know that we spent three weeks talking about Paul's experience in, Corinth, in Athens, and that many feel that, that when he went there and tried to preach the gospel and start a church, that Paul could be perceived as a failure, because history tells us that there was no strong church in Athens, that they kind of ignored him, they disregarded him, they had a negative attitude towards what he said. It wasn't very successful. In fact, some people may think he was a failure. We'll come back to that in a minute. He leaves Athens, and then he goes to a place called Corinth. Now, because we're going to spend the next four weeks after today talking about the church in Corinth, I want to take a, a little bit of an extended time today and tell you what the city of Corinth was like. 
because it was a very unique place. It was very strategic in that day and time, and it'll help us to understand not only why Paul was experiencing stress, but why these letters that he writes in First and Second Corinthians are extremely important. Not too long ago, one of, one of my favorite preachers, a guy named John Ortberg, started a very different series from what we're doing, but he, he, he's, he's preaching on, on the book of 1 Corinthians, and he gave this incredible introduction into the history and the culture of the city of Corinth. And I want to borrow some of what he said because he said it so well to help us to understand what Corinth was like. Let's start by, by looking at a map of where the city of Corinth was. This is a map kind of, of Paul's second missionary journey that you'll see here. All the way down in the bottom right, do you see where it says Palestine and then Jerusalem? Y yes? Okay, I'm feeling stressed. Do you see where it says Jerusalem? Okay, just kind of get your bearings. If you kind of go diagonally up um, to the left then, just to kind of get your bearings, you'll, you'll see, where it's, you see where it says a KI in the, in the green there? Kind of middle left there, right at the... Oh, help me. And then right below that, do you see where it says Corinth? Do you need binoculars? Okay, all right, that helped. So Corinth is over there, kind of middle left. If you look at the next picture, you'll see why it's so strategic. This is zooming in on Greece. At the bottom, do you see where it says Peloponnesus? Which if you're naming a, a female child anytime soon, just think about it, Peloponnesus. Just kind of up to you right there, do you see where it says Corinth? city of Corinth, it's right there on that narrow strip of land that marks this harbor that on the one side is a gateway to Italy and to Europe, and on the other side is a gateway into Asia. It was an unbelievably strategic little strip of land, and it was key to trade routes. 150 years before the time of Christ, the city was destroyed in the midst of conflict. But now you have a different time. Now you are in the time of what's called Pax Romana or the Roman peace. The Roman Empire has united the world. And so Julius Caesar looked at that piece of land and said strategically, trade-wise, this place is a gold mine. And so he rebuilds the city of Corinth. And he makes it this tremendously critical place. He starts over in Corinth. So if you will, to use language that we might be familiar with today, Corinth was a startup with all the dynamics and the culture of something new. When Caesar sent people there to start the city, he populated it mostly with ex-soldiers and ex-slaves, so they didn't have an aristocracy. They didn't have families with old money. Instead, what they had was a mob of hungry, scrappy, highly ambitious risk-takers who were dissatisfied with old ways and old traditions and driven to leverage new opportunities. Sounds like different pockets in our culture today, doesn't it? Even to the point that it attracted entrepreneurs and there was all this new capital and there was all this new wealth. And it was said that if you wanted to make money in that time, buy real estate in Corinth. Because if you could, you were sitting, because of its strategic trade route, in a very strategic place to get wealthy quick. And they thought very highly of themselves. They had developed the most sophisticated water system in the world. They were prideful people. They were people who were very self-assured. And they believed that they had the human ingenuity to solve any problem. They believed that they had been divinely put there by the gods. 
and it was an interesting, buzzing, happening place because of the port city, you had a lot of transient population. You had a lot of sailors who were just there for a short period of time. So quickly, Corinth developed an anything goes attitude towards sexual expression. In part, it was their, their mythology. There was a temple there to Aphrodite, who, who many would know as the goddess of love. At one point, it was said that that temple had more than a thousand temple prostitutes as a part of their religion. People were so promiscuous in that city that it was told that if you were to have uh, um, kind of loose sexual morals, it was said that you would Corinthianize. A term in that time for a prostitute was to refer to someone as a woman of Corinth. You might say that what happens in Corinth now, how do you know that? <laughs> Extremely religious. They had temples to over 26 different gods. By the time Paul gets there, it was a hub. It was a center. When Rome was colonizing that area and had to choose where to put their capital, they didn't go to the ancient capital of Athens. They started a new capital in the happening place of Corinth. And it was a place that was so key because they were constantly building and every project that they built had a monument or an inscription, something that was designed to promote the status of the builder. It was all about status and wealth and possessions and education. Let me give you just one example. There was a guy named Babius and he built this fountain in the city of Corinth. And when he did, he put an inscription on it that said this, Babius paid for this monument out of his own wealth and approved it by his own authority as a city magistrate. And he wanted to make sure that people knew that he had been the one who put that fountain there so much that he had it inscribed on that monument in two different places. Make sure you don't miss that it's all about me. One author writes, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. So when John Ortberg was expressing this, he came to this conclusion. He said, what a weird society where people would publicly post their accomplishments, honors, experiences, and possessions in order to be seen and liked by other people. Let's take a quick break for a selfie. Hang on, hang on a minute here. <laughs> Remind you of any place you live? There was constant competition, constant desire for wealth, Corinth was a city of unprincipled profit takers who would stop at nothing to outdo, outgain, and outearn their rivals. Here's some things that they said about Corinth. Not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. And one line was, in Corinth, only the tough survive. In walks the Apostle Paul. Straight off of a disappointing frustrating experience in Athens to the culture shock of Corinth. Can you imagine that that might have been a stressful place to be? I mean, just think about it for your own life. Stress is often shaped by the pressures of the culture, the culture that we live in, the culture of your workplace, the culture of your family, the culture of your community or your neighborhood. The place where you are can oftentimes put a stress on you because of the culture that you're in. Anybody, do you know what I'm talking about? We find ourselves in places where we have stressful situations. Politically, we live in a stressful climate and culture right now. 
you probably are totally unaware that there's an election in two days. Anybody seen the ads? Anybody? Look, um, let me just pause here for just a moment. Tuesday is an election day, and I know a lot of people would love for, for more, more public dialogue on political things. Here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to make sure you pray for those elections, and then I would encourage you as a citizen of the United States and especially as a steward of what God has given to you, that you vote in those elections and that you make it a priority to pray and then vote according to your faith and how God leads you in the elections on Tuesday. And everybody said? <laughs> because we live in a culture that stresses us. The, the stress gets even a little bit more interesting, though. Look at this, Acts chapter 18, verse 2. There, Paul met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, watch this, because Claudius, Claudius is the emperor, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome, and Paul went to see them. He ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. You know that anti-Semitism is not a new thing. And for Aquila and Priscilla, it put them in a place of incredible change. That was exile, they, they got booted, they had to leave there. And they go into this new place of Corinth after some uncomfortable transition. Seasons of transition are typically seasons of stress. Seasons of transition, when we experience change, are typically seasons of stress. Anybody? Why is that the situation? Because what is unknown can make us unsure. So when we come into a place like that, we're not sure what's going on and we're in that what is unknown can make us unsure and it's very stressful for us in those times. So imagine where Paul and his new friends Aquila and Priscilla are, they have incredible what we would call situational stress to the point that when Paul is beginning his letter to the church in Corinth, he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse three, he says, I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. Sound like stress to you? Sure does to me. That wasn't his only stress. Here's a, here's a second kind of stress that some of us know. Number two is was what we call financial stress. It's financial stress. We read this, Acts chapter 18, verse two. There Paul met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. See, Paul, when he was a rabbi and was going to get his education in religion, it was required that he also had a skill that he could work his hands with. And so he became a tent maker. That was someone who would make tents, someone who would repair tents, someone who would work with leather and fabric and work on sandals or, or saddles or whatever else it might be that they'd have to work on. That was his livelihood. And so he meets Aquila and Priscilla and they become connected, not just because they're Jews, but not just because probably they were both Christians already at that point, but also because they were tent makers, which meant he probably stayed at their place and their home was probably their shop and that he lived with them and did this work. Why is this so important for us to see? Paul was a tent maker, not just because it was his hobby, but because he had to put food on the table. Paul needed to make a living. He's in a brand new town. He's not sure how this is gonna go. We get the feeling that he's still there kind of by himself because his friends haven't quite arrived yet. And in this moment, he's feeling a financial stress. The pressure to provide brings a stress all its own. 
And many of us know that. The Bible speaks about money a lot. Over 2,000 times in Scripture, you find passages that speak about our possessions, that speak about what we value, that speak about money. It's a critical thing. Financial stress is a real thing. According to the American Psychological Association, 72% of Americans, 72% are stressed about money at least occasionally, and 22% feel extremely stressed about their finances. 22% extremely stressed. And I've got to say, from my pastoral experience, I would say that number of 22% is low. Finances stress us out. The Bible has a lot to say about that. We're we're going to kind of move through these five stress things real quick. If you you have the, the, the notes on the Bible app or if you go out to our website later this week, there's more scriptures that will be listed in the notes there about each one of these stress points. There's financial stress. Let me give you a third one. It's what we would call emotional stress. It's what we might call emotional stress. Let's go back, Acts chapter 18, verse four. Every Sabbath, Paul reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Think of Paul's recent stress. He's in Athens where he's lonely, where he's an outcast, where he tries to preach the gospel and many feel that he failed. And then he comes to Corinth, which this culture shock And he goes to his own people to try to get them to understand the truth about Jesus. And they reject him to the point that it's abusive. Do you think that was stressful? You better believe it was. He's had disappointment and loneliness and rejection. And Think about who are you talking about here. You are talking about the apostle Paul who from the very beginning was an achiever. He was successful. When he was studying to be a rabbi, he was at the top of his class. He was always out there accomplishing. People were always trusting him with something new. Everything that he did seemed to have this incredible effectiveness to it. And now all of a sudden, from Athens to Corinth, he's had this string of failures where it's gotta feel like he just can't get a win. Anybody ever been there? And that stress that comes with that? That emotional stress is a real thing. And when it comes, stress creates anxiety in us. If we're not careful, it stirs up something in us that we really have to look at and express. Stress creates this anxiety and restlessness, a lack of motivation, feeling overwhelmed, irritability and anger, sadness or depression. And then stress affects our relationships. It starts to affect our interaction with other people. And we find ourselves in a place where we are angry or where we withdraw socially and we pull ourselves away. This stress is a very real thing. And know this, the stress of life can have a very real effect on our emotions. It can impact us. And not just emotionally. Here's the fourth thing. It's what I would call physical stress. Physical stress. Acts chapter 18, verse 7. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. This guy's working 24-7. When he's not mending tents, he's in the synagogue. 
And then he gets kicked out of the synagogue. So he goes to the dude's house next door and he starts this church and he's constantly preaching. And at the same time, he's got to be interacting with people. And he's got this physical process that he's going through day and night. He's working in this. Some of it's success, some of it's failure. You can imagine that it starts to take a toll on him physically. Have you ever known any of the common effects of stress on your body? Headache, muscle tension, chest pain, fatigue, hard time staying awake in church, stomach upset, sleep problems. <laughs> look, fatigue's a real thing. You might go, look, I know what it's like to be a tired mom or dad. I know what it's like to have health issues. I know what it's like where stress keeps me from sleep. Seems like I'm working all the time. I'm studying all the time. My job is demanding. Stress takes its toll on our bodies. There's physical stress. And ultimately, here's a, here's a fifth one just real quick. It's what we just call spiritual stress. You, you can see that Paul's experiencing this here. Because on the one hand, he has spiritual rejection. He goes to his own people and they, they abuse him, it says. Look, spiritual opposition produces stress. You ever been doing what you think God wants you to do and it's like you're banging up against a wall and it's that difficult spot and it creates this stress? So on the one hand, he's got spiritual opposition, but people are getting saved. Like there's cool things that are happening. So he also has spiritual victory and I'm telling you, spiritual victory produces stress just the same. Paul uses language when, when he writes later, he says, I have the burden in 2 Corinthians of all the churches. There's a spiritual stress that comes with victory as well. You have to recognize this. The enemy's out to get you spiritually, whether things are good or things are bad. In fact, sometimes more stress comes from the success than from failure. And in those moments, you find yourself up against a situational stress, financial, emotional, physical, spiritual, to the point that there's a story in the Old Testament about the prophet Elijah when he has this incredible spiritual success God does this awesome miracle. God shows himself to be true. He gives them this great victory, and then the evil king and queen say to Elijah, we're gonna get you. We're gonna do you in, which is kind of silly because God just cleaned their clock. And yet, when they say this, watch what happens. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse three. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Anybody ever said that? <laughs> Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Some of you have taken that nap where you reached the end of yourself, and you said... I have had enough situational, financial, emotional, physical, spiritual. You can probably put your own spin on it kind of stress. And you just say, God, this stress has me messed up. All right, it's been a good time. Thanks. <laughs> what do we do? Can you see the stress Paul was under in Corinth? As you read this passage, and especially as you see what happens next, you get the feeling that it had such an effect on the great apostle Paul that he was ready to throw in the towel. That stress had messed him up to the point that he was gonna say, I'm done with Corinth. 
This is over for me. What do you do when stress comes fast and furious in your life? Look, for some of you, you need to hear the voice of Jesus today. You might not hear it physically, but you're gonna hear it through this text. And watch what Jesus says. Acts chapter 18, verse nine. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I'm with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. You you get the feeling like Paul was about to give up, don't you? Because he hears from Jesus and then Luke writes, so he stayed. Yeah, he was thinking about bailing. But God told him to do something different. And look, from Paul's encounter in this vision, there's something here, insight for us to understand. The stress that you're under, student, or parent, or boss, or employee, or leader, or follower, or wherever you find yourself right now, let me encourage you. I want to give you two spiritual stress relievers, two things that you see come to Paul in this passage, just real quick. The first one is this, number one, Jesus gives us peace. Number one, Jesus gives us peace. And you might go, well, that's so simple. I know that. Yeah, but does he? Look, in this passage, it says that Jesus shows up to Paul one night in a vision, and he starts out here. He says, do not be afraid. We hear this over and over and over again in Scripture. When God has an encounter with someone, when Jesus has an encounter with someone, when the Holy Spirit ministers to somebody, when there's an angel that has an encounter with somebody in Scripture, over and over again, the words they start with are fear not, Do not be dismayed. Do not be afraid. And did you notice it's not a suggestion? Jesus doesn't say to Paul, hey, Paul, if you feel like it, why don't you just knock out this fear stuff? It's up to you. It's your option. It's a command. He says, do not be afraid. Here's why. God does not give us fear. If in the midst of your stress, and stress is a real thing, right? If in the midst of your stress, you find that stress being driven by fear, know that that is not from God. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So one of the first things in our stress is to say, look, the things I'm feeling here, what, what is reality in the eyes of God? If I'm fearful, then that's not coming from God. God doesn't give us fear. God gives us peace. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And what's interesting is Jesus comes to him and says, look, I want to give you peace. But did you see when he came to Paul? He doesn't come to Paul as Paul's sitting out on the deck doing his devotions and drinking his coffee. He doesn't come to Paul as he's walking down the street and praying. He doesn't come to Paul as he's... um, preparing for a sermon. He has to come to Paul in the middle of the night in a vision because that's probably the only chance he had to really get Paul's attention. God may have to slow us down to get our attention. There are times when God has to hit the brakes in our lives so that we can hear what he has to say. For some of you rolling into Calvary on a Sunday morning and sitting in these old movie theater seats with the very convenient cup holder that you have right there, is the most you slow down all week. And then 
as you drift into your slumber that hits you, usually about point three, <laughs> God appears to you in a vision. <laughs> Actually, it's more of a nightmare, I think. <laughs> because today, I think he wants to get your attention. Sometimes he has to slow us down in the midst of our stress, which means we must deliberately develop rhythms of rest in our lives. I know you're busy, I know you're stressed, I know life is coming at you fast and furious, and I know that just about the time you sit down for yourself, the baby wakes up, or the telephone rings, or, or the wheels fall off the bus, or something happens. But in the midst of that, wh when do we go, where have I deliberately developed rhythms of rest in my life? Because I know that if I get hungry, or angry, or lonely, or tired, or I let those things take over in my life, what I'm gonna find is I'm gonna make bad decisions, I'm gonna have the, the, the effects of stress getting the best of me in my life. Pastor Rick Warren says it this way. He says, when it comes to dealing with stress, we need to, and this has been helpful for me, we need to divert daily. Like on a daily basis, where is it that you find some time to relax, that you divert daily, that you um, withdraw weekly. That's that principle of Sabbath, right? That there's a time when you stop every week and rest and that you abandon annually. That at least once a year, you take time to go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull apart with my family, by myself, whatever that is. I need to take that time and do that because we need that rest. And yet so often, we don't give that rest to ourselves, which then, because there's so much stress, puts us in a place where we, where we overreact sometimes to things. I read this story about a, about a young lady who took a, a job as a server in a restaurant, and she was being trained. It was her first day. It was kind of a small family diner type kind of place. And so the person that was the, the supervisor was, was walking her through and was showing her the ropes and this kind of stuff. And they kind of started in the back and they were working their way back up to the front. They got up to the front counter and another employee came and said to the, the supervisor that was training her, hey, they need, they need you in the kitchen right now. And so the two of them went to the back and says, hey, I'll be right back, just, just stay right here. So they go to the back into the kitchen and this young lady's sitting there just kind of waiting with nothing to do. And like most of us, she gets a little fidgety a little bit. And as a result, she starts messing with things. She picks up a pen and starts clicking it. There's a clipboard there. She starts, you know, flipping the little clippy thing that's at the top of that. And all of a sudden, she's just kind of messing with things that are there and stuff. She looks over, and under a clump of wires, there's this little button. She says to herself, I wonder what that button is. Here's how she described it. Some primal monkey part of my brain <laughs> thinks that it's suitable for clicking, so I start clicking it. So she clicks it a little bit. And then she hears footsteps. So she stops clicking, she steps back, and she starts looking at like the employee manual, like she's been paying attention the whole time kind of thing. So she goes to the restroom. When she comes out of the restroom, she finds that her boss is out there with some concerned customers, oh, and the police as well. And they say to her, we're trying to figure out, did you click the 911 button? She's like, I didn't know there was a 911 button. So they took her over and said, that's the 911 button, and she goes, Oh yeah, I guess I clicked it. They, she then finds out that it's not just two police officers that are there, but that while she was in the restroom, the police showed up and surrounded the restaurant because they figured it must have been an emergency because she clicked the panic button 348 times. <laughs> Sometimes we do things when we're stressed out, don't we? <laughs> How do we not click the panic button? Jesus said, Paul, don't be afraid. 
because I'm with you in the midst of this stress. And Paul, your stress is real. Friend, your stress is real. But Jesus says, I'm with you. Our confidence comes from God's presence. That's where we find it. We find it when we're with him. When you look through scripture, God rarely gives pep talks. He rarely says, hey, buddy, hey, sweetie, you got this. You know what God says? He says, I'm with you. Because on your own, you'd never have this. But in the midst of your stress, I'm with you. So we have to deliberately find these rhythms of rest where God can speak to us in our stress, and we must deliberately engage in practices of peace, things that will help to bring peace to our lives, spending time in God's word, listening to worship music, spending time with others that will encourage us, finding ways to, to have moments of solitude and times in prayer. We must deliberately engage in practices of peace. And, and don't, don't let anybody think that this is just way too simple sometimes. Because for some of us, it's just a matter of figuring out how do we handle our stress. For others of us, it goes deeper than that in many ways. For some of us, as we wrestle with, with thoughts like depression that's a very real thing and suicidal thoughts that are a very real thing, and oftentimes we're afraid to talk about things like mental illness that really come up when we talk about stress, and these are real things that for some of us, we may start to think that, well, if I was just this more spiritual, if I just did this more, then maybe I'd be okay. For some of us, we not only need Jesus to bring us peace, but we also need to reach out to others who can help us as well. Like that, that's an important thing, that we engage in these practices of peace and know this, peace is often chosen, not found. Many times we talk about peace, like, well, I was, I was walking down the road and I lost my peace. And then I stumbled along a little bit there. I was like, oh, there it is, I found it, I found peace. It's not how it works. Peace isn't just, oh, my foot hit something. There it was. There's peace. I wondered where it was. Peace is something we choose. Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled because Jesus gives us peace and Jesus gives us strength. Number two, Jesus gives us strength. This is another sermon all of its own, but just listen to what Jesus says to Paul. He says, Paul, keep on speaking. Look, I've called you to do something and I'll give you the strength for that. And he says, Paul, don't, don't be silent because what I've called you to do, I'm gonna help you. So don't give up. I know it's stressful, dude, but don't give up. Some of you need to hear those words today so clearly, just like Jesus said to Paul. You keep on doing that. You do not give up because, Paul, I've put you there for a reason. Do not allow stress to stop what God wants to start. You keep moving forward. You keep doing that thing. You be faithful to what he's called you to do. Don't let stress stop you when God is birthing something new in you. What if Paul had bailed? What would have happened to that church in Corinth? He ends up being there for 18 months because God has something in store for him. And then God says this, which just intrigues me. He says, Paul, look, don't be afraid because I am with you. You keep speaking. Don't you stop because, Paul, I got many people in that city. Look, Paul, I know things that you don't know. And I have plans that you can't be aware of. And I know the stress right now is constricting, it's refining, it's holding you back. But know this, God already knows what you do not know now. What you do not know now, God already knows it. And he knows what you have and he knows what you don't have. And he knows that you'll never make it through that stress without his peace and without his strength. 
He attests to this when he writes later in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read it to you from what's called the message version of the Bible. Sometimes people think the message version is kind of controversial. It, it's, not, it's not really a very accurate translation, but it's one individual's interpretation of Scripture, and it can be a helpful commentary. And at times, I think what, what Eugene Peterson, who's the gentleman that just, just recently passed away and wrote this, what he says is so helpful, and I think this is one of those passages. Listen to his interpretation of that passage of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul is writing, and he says, and then God told me, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks, I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. When I am weak, then I'm strong. And I'm concerned about some of you. Not all of you. Well, I'm concerned about all of you, but some of you have let stress mess you up. And you're not doing anything about it. Because you don't know what to do. You're sure that if, if, you, if you pulled back at all, everything would fall apart. And that stress and that pressure is there and it's real. You don't address it. You don't acknowledge it. You don't release it. You just want to ignore it. And if you don't address the stress, it could have a detrimental effect on your family, your job, and your soul. And the reality is Jesus gave you an invitation to deal with it. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 it says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One more story from the history of Corinth. There was a legend that the first king in Corinth was a guy named Sisyphus. This is, this is a myth. This isn't really true, but it was a story that they told. And the Sisyphus was an explorer that he was a, like a scientist. He was extremely wealthy, and he believed himself to be the smartest guy in the room, so much so that he had figured out a way to cheat death. Culture in that time would have believed that when you died, you took something with you, so you were buried with, with certain riches. In fact, you would have a funeral so that you would have those riches and that's what you would use to pay your way into the underworld. So when he died, he told his wife, don't have that funeral for me because I have a plan. So when he, when he died, the myth says, he stood before death and death said, where is, where is what you owe me? And he said, you know, my wife didn't give me a funeral, so I have nothing. So why don't you send me back to life for one day and then I will get this and I will bring back the change and I will pay you then what I owe you to cross the river over into the next life. And death agreed. Death said, okay, go back. And the myth says that he went back and he had outsmarted death because he was the smartest man in the world. And then he never went back. He and his wife, they ran away and they hid and they lived a quiet, simple life to a ripe old age. And then he died again. And when he died again, he stood before death, who was not very happy this time. 
And the myth says that as a result, he was sentenced, he was punished, that for eternity, he would push a rock up a hill, a giant boulder that he would push up to the top of that hill. And inevitably, every time Sisyphus got this rock up to the top of the hill, it would slip from his hands and it would roll back down the hill and he'd have to go back down the hill again and he'd have to one more time with each laboring step, with each mighty push, with each stretch of his muscles, he would have to push that rock back up the hill again till he got almost to the top of the hill and then it would slip from his grasp again and it would roll back down to the bottom and he would push it back up till it rolled down over and over and over and over again. And Sisyphus, the myth said, would be sentenced to do that for eternity. Interesting legend that reminds some of you of your life because it feels like you just keep pushing that thing up the hill, but you're getting nowhere. And the stress just comes into your marriage and into your job and into your life and into your soul. And you're like, is there any answer? And Jesus says, come to me, those of you who are stressed out, and I'll give you rest. So I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Because I want you to be in a place where you can hear the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. And look, sometimes when we look at principles from God's word, we acknowledge that they're, that they're always timeless. Like they're always true. But sometimes a message isn't just timeless. Sometimes it's timely. Like it's for this moment. And you, you know in your heart that it's not random that you heard this but that God is speaking to you about your situation, about your finances, about your emotion, about your body, about your spirit today. And so if you would say, God, stress has messed me up and this was a timely message for me today. I need your peace and I need your strength. Would you stand right where you are, right here in this auditorium? You'd say, God, stress, <laughs> I need your peace. I need your strength. I need you to be at work in my life. This is a timely message for me today. Just stand right where you are. Yeah, you see, you're not alone. Just <laughs> right where you are. And, and in this moment, would you just begin to ask him, God, would you give me your peace? Lord, would you help me to find your strength? You may be watching this online somewhere. You're seeing this on a screen. Right now, just begin to say, God, would you give me your strength? Or would you give me your peace? Jesus, I need your work in my life. I need you as my Savior. I need you as my Lord. Would you do this work? I'm going to ask the rest of us if we would stand as well. Maybe somebody standing next to you that, that stood, said it was a timely message. Just put a hand on their shoulder if you're comfortable. And our prayer is going to be this song that we sang earlier. Veronica's going to lead us in this at the mention of your name. God, as we sing this, as we recognize this, would you speak to our hearts? Lord, would you minister in this moment your peace and your strength? Jesus, would you bring that just at the mention of your name? Let's make this song our prayer. We thank you, God. Praise you, Lord. At the mention of your name, every chain will break. I know everything will change. of your name. Make that your prayer. At the mention 
of our life and they're real that your presence is just as real that you say to us don't be afraid because I'm with you and I already know how this thing's going to work out so you keep doing what I've called you to do don't give up I'll give you strength I'll give you peace I'll give you rest going to make it through this stress together. Lord, thanks for your word. I pray that as we go back out of this service and into our weeks, that you would remind us that you are the God who gives us peace and strength. Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Father, would you send us out with your special favor and with your wonderful peace? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Thanks for being here. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.